Chapter Seven of Companionable Books by Henry Van Dyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Recovery of Joy. Wordsworth's Poetry. When this essay was written a good many years ago, there was no available biography of Wordsworth except the two-volume memoir by Bishop Christopher Wordsworth, the poet's nephew. It is a solid work of family piety, admiring and admirable, but it must be admitted that it is dull. It is full of matters of no particular consequence, and it leaves out events in the poet's life and traits in his character which are not only interesting in themselves, but also of real importance to a vital understanding of his work. Even while reading the memoir, I felt sure that he was not always the tranquil, patient, wise, serenely happy sage that he appeared in his later years, sure that a joy in peace as deep and strong as his was could only have been won through sharp conflict sure that the smooth portrait drawn by the reverent hand of the bishop did not fully and frankly depict the real man who wrote the deep and moving poetry of wordsworth it was about this time that the valuable studies of wordsworth's early life which had been made by professor emile legois then of the university of lyon now of sorbonne were published in english this volume threw a new light upon the poet's nature revealing its intense romantic strain and making clear at least some of the causes which led to the shipwreck of his first hopes and to the period of profound gloom which followed his return from residence in france in december seventeen ninety two shortly after reading professor legois book i met by chance a gentleman in baltimore and was convinced by what he told me in a conversation which i do not feel at liberty to repeat in detail that wordsworth had a grand affair of the heart while he lived in france with a young french lady of excellent family and character but they were parted a daughter was born whom he legitimated according to french law and descendants of that daughter were living there was therefore solid ground for my feeling that the poet was not a man who had been always and easily decorous he had passed through a time of storm and stress he had lost not only his political dreams and his hopes of a career but also his first love and his joy the knowledge of this gave his poetry a new meaning for me brought it nearer made it seem more deeply human it was under the influence of this feeling that this essay was written in a farmhouse in tiringham valley where i was staying in the winter of eighteen ninety seven with richard watson gilder and his wife since then professor george mclean harper has completed and published nineteen sixteen his classic book on william wordsworth his life works and influence this is undoubtedly the very best biography of the poet and it contains much new material particularly with reference to his life and connections in france but there is nothing in it to shake and on the contrary there is much to confirm the opinion which was first put forth in this essay namely that the central theme the great significance of wordsworth poetry is in the recovery of joy one william wordsworth was born in seventeen seventy in the town of cockermouth in cumberland educated in the village school of hawkshead among the mountains and at st john's college cambridge a dreamy moody youth always ambitious but not always industrious passionate in disposition with high spirits simple tastes and independent virtues he did not win and seems not to have desired university honors his principal property when he came of age consisted of two manuscript poems an evening walk and descriptive sketches composed in the manner of cooper's task with these in his pocket he wandered over to france 
partly to study the language, partly to indulge his inborn love of travel by a second journey on the continent, and partly to look on at the vivid scenes of the French Revolution. But the vast demonic movement of which he proposed to be a spectator caught his mind in its current and swept him out of his former self. Wordsworth was not originally a revolutionist, like Coleridge and Southey. He was not even a native radical, except as all simplicity and austerity of character tend towards radicalism. When he passed through Paris in November of 1791 and picked up a bit of stone from the ruins of the Bastille as a souvenir, it was only a sign of youthful sentimentality. But when he came back to Paris in October of 1792, after a winter at Orléans and a summer at Bleu, in close intercourse with that ardent and noble Republican, Michel Beaupré, he had been converted into an eager partisan of the Republic. He even dreamed of throwing himself into the conflict, reflecting on the power of one pure and energetic will to accomplish great things. His conversion was not, it seemed to me, primarily a matter of intellectual conviction. It was an affair of emotional sympathy. His knowledge of the political and social theories of the revolution was but superficial. He was never a doctrinaire. The influence of Rousseau and Condorcet did not penetrate far beneath the skin of his mind. It was the primal joy of the revolutionary movement that fascinated him, the confused glimmering of new hopes and aspirations for mankind. He was like a man who has journeyed, half asleep, from the frost-bound dullness of a wintry clime, and finds himself fully awake in a new country, where the time for the singing of birds has come, and the multitudinous blossoming of spring bursts forth. He is possessed by the spirit of joy, and reason follows where feeling leads the way. Wordsworth himself has confessed, half unconsciously, the secret of his conversion in his lines on the French Revolution as it appeared to enthusiasts at its commencement. Oh, pleasant exercise of hope and joy, for mighty were the auxiliars which then stood upon our side, we who were strong in love. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. There was another bliss, keener even, than the dreams of political enthusiasm that thrilled him in this momentous year, the rapture of romantic love. Into this he threw himself with ardor and tasted all its joy. We do not know exactly what it was that broke the vision and dashed the cup of gladness from his lips. Perhaps it was some difficulty with the girl's family, who were royalists. Perhaps it was simply the poet's poverty. Whatever the cause was, young love's dream was shattered, and there was nothing left but the painful memory of an error to be atoned for in later years as best he could. His political hopes and ideals were darkened by the actual horrors which filled Paris during the fall of 1792. His impulse to become a revolutionist was shaken, if not altogether broken. Returning to England at the end of the same year, he tried to sustain his sinking spirits by setting in order the reasons and grounds of his newborn enthusiasm, already waning. His letter to Bishop Watson, written in 1793, is the fullest statement of Republican sympathies that he ever made. In it, he even seems to justify the execution of Louis the Sixteenth, and makes light of the idle cry of modish lamentation which has resounded from the court to the cottage over the royal martyr's fate. He defends the right of the people to overthrow all who oppress them, to choose their own rulers, to direct their own destiny by universal suffrage, and to sweep all obstacles out of their way. The reasoning is so absolute, so relentless, 
the scorn for all who oppose it is so lofty that already we begin to suspect a wavering conviction entrenching itself for safety the course of events in france was ill-fitted to nourish the joy of a pure-minded enthusiast the tumultuous terrors of the revolution trod its ideals in the dust its light was obscured in its own sulphurous smoke robespierre ran his bloody course to the end and when his head fell under the guillotine wordsworth could not but exult war was declared between france and england and his heart was divided but the deeper and stronger ties were those that bound him to his own country he was english in his very flesh and bones the framework of his mind was of cumberland so he stood rooted in his native allegiance while the leaves and blossoms of joy fell from him like a tree stripped bare by the first great gale of autumn the years from seventeen ninety three to seventeen ninety five were the period of his deepest poverty spiritual and material his youthful poems published in seventeen ninety three met with no more success than they deserved his plans for entering into active life were feeble and futile his mind was darkened and confused his faith shaken to the foundation and his feelings clouded with despair in this crisis of disaster two gifts of fortune came to him his sister dorothy took her place at his side to lead him back by her wise tender cheerful love from the far country of despair his friend rainsley calvert bequeathed to him a legacy of nine hundred pounds a small inheritance but enough to protect him from the wolf of poverty while he devoted his life to the muse from the autumn of seventeen ninety five when he and his sister set up housekeeping together in a farmhouse at racedown until his death in eighteen fifty in the cottage at rydal mount where he had lived for thirty-seven years with his wife and children there was never any doubt about the disposition of his life it was wholly dedicated to poetry two but what kind of poetry what was to be its motive power what is animating spirit here the experience of life acting upon his natural character became the deciding factor wordsworth was born a lover of joy not sensual but spiritual the first thing that happened to him when he went out into the world was that he went bankrupt of joy the enthusiasm of his youth was dashed the high hope of his spirit was quenched at the touch of reality his dreams dissolved it seemed as though he were altogether beaten a broken man but with the gentle courage of his sister to sustain him his indomitable spirit rose again to renew the adventure of life he did not evade the issue by turning aside to seek for fame or wealth his problem from first to last was the problem of joy inward sincere imperishable joy how to recover it after life's disappointments how to deepen it amid life's illusions how to secure it through life's trials how to spread it among life's confusions this was the problem that he faced this was the wealth that he desired to possess and to increase and to diffuse the wealth of joy in widest commonality spread none of the poets has been as clear as wordsworth in the avowal that the immediate end of poetry is pleasure we have no sympathy said he but what is propagated by pleasure wherever we sympathize with pain it will be found that the sympathy is produced and carried on by subtle combinations with pleasure we have no knowledge that is no general principles drawn from the contemplation of particular facts but what has been built up by pleasure and exists in us by pleasure alone and again the end of poetry is to produce excitement in coexistence with an overbalance of pleasure 
but it may be clearly read in his poetry that what he means by pleasure is really an inward spiritual joy it is such a joy in its various forms that charms him most as he sees it in the world his gallery of human portraits contains many figures but every one of them is presented in the light of joy the rising light of dawn or the waning light of sunset lucy gray and the little maid in we are seven are childish shapes of joy the highland girl is an embodiment of virginal gladness and the poet cries now thanks to heaven that of its grace hath led me to this lovely place joy have i had and going hence i bear away my recompense wordsworth regards joy as an actual potency of vision with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy we see into the heart of things joy is indeed the master word of his poetry the dancing daffodils enrich his heart with joy they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils the kitten playing with fallen leaves charms him with pure merriment the skylark's song lifts him up into the clouds there is madness about thee and joy divine in that song of thine he turns from the nightingale that creature of a fiery heart to the stock dove he sang of love with quiet blending slow to begin and never ending of serious faith and inward glee that was the song the song for me he thinks of love which grows to use joy as her holiest language he speaks of life's disenchantments and wearinesses as all that is at enmity with joy when autumn closes around him and the season makes him conscious that his leaf is sere and yellow on the bough he exclaims yet will i temperately rejoice wide is the range and free the choice of undiscordant themes which haply kindred souls may prize not less than vernal ecstasies and passion's feverish dreams temperate rejoicing that is the clearest note of wordsworth's poetry not an unrestrained gladness for he can never escape from that deep strange experience of his youth often in thought he must hear humanity in the fields and groves pipe solitary anguish or must hang brooding above the fierce confederate storm of sorrow barricaded evermore within the walls of cities but even while he hears these sounds he will not be downcast or forlorn he will find a deeper music to conquer these clashing discords he will learn and teach a hidden joy strong to survive amid the sorrows of a world like this he will not look for it in some far-off unrealized utopia but in the very world which is the world of all of us the place where in the end we find our happiness or not at all to this quest of joy to this proclamation of joy he dedicates his life by words which speak of nothing more than what we are would i arouse the sensual from their sleep of death and win the vacant and the vain to noble raptures and herein he becomes a prophet to his age a prophet of the secret of joy simple universal enduring the open secret the burden of wordsworth's prophecy of joy as found in his poetry is threefold first he declares with exultation that he has seen in nature the evidence of a living spirit in vital correspondence with the spirit of man second he expresses the deepest tenderest feeling for the inestimable value of the humblest human life a feeling which through all its steadiness 
is yet strangely illumined by sudden gushes of penetration and pathos third he proclaims a lofty ideal of the liberty and greatness of man consisting in obedience to law and fidelity to duty i am careful in choosing words to describe the manner of this threefold prophesying because i am anxious to distinguish it from didacticism not that wordsworth is never didactic for he is very often entirely and dreadfully so but at such times he is not at his best and it is in these long uninspired intervals that we must bear as walter pater has said with patience the presence of an alien element in wordsworth's work which never coalesced with what is really delightful in it nor underwent his peculiar power wordsworth's genius as a poet did not always illuminate his industry as a writer in the intervals he prosed terribly there is a good deal of what lowell calls dr watsonus in some of his poems but the character of his best poems was strangely inspirational they came to him like gifts and he read them aloud as if wondering at their beauty through the protracted descriptions of an excursion or the careful explanation of a state of mind he slowly plods on foot but when he comes to the mount of vision he mounts up with wings as an eagle in the analysis of a character in the narration of a simple story he often drones and sometimes stammers but when the flash of insight arrives he sings this is the difference between the pedagogue and the prophet the pedagogue repeats a lesson learned by rote the prophet chants a truth revealed by vision three let me speak first of wordsworth as a poet of nature the peculiar and precious quality of his best work is that it is done with his eye on the object and his imagination beyond it nothing could be more accurate more true to the facts than wordsworth's observation of the external world there was an underlying steadiness a fundamental placidity a kind of patient heroic obstinacy in his character which blended with his delicate almost tremulous sensibility to make him rarely fitted for this work he could look and listen long when the magical moment of disclosure arrived he was there and ready some of his senses were not particularly acute odors seemed not to have affected him there are few phrases descriptive of the fragrance of nature in his poetry and so far as i can remember none of them are vivid he could never have written tennyson's line about the smell of violets hidden in the green nor was he especially sensitive to color most of his descriptions in this region are vague and luminous rather than precise and brilliant color words are comparatively rare in his poems yellow i think was his favorite if we may judge by the flowers that he mentioned most frequently yet more than any color he loved clearness transparency the diaphanous current of a pure stream the light of sunset that imbues whatever it strikes with gem-like hues but in two things his power of observation was unsurpassed i think we may almost say unrivalled in sound and in movement for these he had what he describes in his sailor brother a watchful heart still cochant an inevitable ear and an eye practised like a blind man's touch in one of his juvenile poems a sonnet describing the stillness of the world at twilight he says calm is all nature as a resting wheel the kine are couched upon the dewy grass the horse alone seen dimly as i pass is cropping audibly his evening meal at nightfall while he is listening to the hooting of the owls and mocking them there comes an interval of silence and then a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart the voice of mountain torrents 
at midnight on the summit of snowdon from a rift in the cloud ocean at his feet he hears the roar of waters torrents streams innumerable roaring with one voice under the shadows of the great yew-trees of borrowdale he loves to lie and listen to the mountain flood murmuring from glaramara's inmost caves what could be more perfect than the little lyric which begins yes it was the mountain echo solitary clear profound answering to the shouting cuckoo giving to her sound for sound how poignant is the touch with which he describes the notes of the fiery-hearted nightingale singing in the dusk they pierce and pierce tumultuous harmony and fierce but at sunrise other choristers make different melodies the birds are singing in the distant woods over his own sweet voice the stock dove broods the jay makes an answer as the magpie chatters and all the air is filled with pleasant noise of waters wandering into a lovely glen among the hills he hears all the voices of nature blending together the stream so ardent in its course before sent forth such sallies of glad sound that all which i till then had heard appeared the voice of common pleasure beast and bird the lamb the shepherd's dog the linnet and the thrush vied with this waterfall and made a song which while i listened seemed like the wild growth or some natural produce of the air that could not cease to be wordsworth more than any other english poet interprets and glorifies the mystery of sound he is the poet who sits oftenest by the ear-gate listening to the whispers and murmurs of the invisible guests who throng that portal into the city of mansoul indeed the whole spiritual meaning of nature seems to come to him in the form of sound wonder not if high the transport great the joy i felt communing in this sort through the earth and heaven with every form of creature as it looked towards the uncreated with a countenance of adoration with an eye of love one song they sang and it was audible most audible then when the fleshly ear or come by humblest prelude of that strain forgot her functions and slept undisturbed no less wonderful is his sense of the delicate motions of nature the visible transition of form and outline how exquisite is the description of a high poised summer cloud that heareth not the loud winds when they call and moveth all together if it move at all he sees the hazy ridges of the mountains like a golden ladder climbing suffused with sunny air to stop no record hath told where he sees the gentle mists curling with unconfirmed intent on that green mountain's side he watches the swan swimming on lake lucarno behold as with a gushing impulse heaves that downy prow and softly cleaves the mirror of the crystal flood vanish inverted hill and shadowy wood he catches sight of the fluttering green linnet among the hazel trees my dazzled sight he oft deceives a brother of the dancing leaves he looks on the meadows sleeping in the spring sunshine the cattle are grazing their heads never raising there are forty feeding like one he beholds the far-off torrent pouring down ben cochran yon foaming flood seems motionless as ice its dizzy turbulence eludes the eye frozen by distance now in such an observation of nature as this 
so keen so patient so loving so delicate there is an immediate comfort for the troubled mind a direct refuge and repose for the heart to see and hear such things is peace and joy it is a consolation and an education wordsworth himself has said this very distinctly one impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man of moral evil and of good than all the sages can but the most perfect expression of his faith in the educating power of nature is given in one of the little group of lyrics which are bound together by the name of lucy love songs so pure and simple that they seem almost mysterious in their ethereal passion three years she grew in sun and shower then nature said a lovelier flower on earth was never sown this child i to myself will take she shall be mine and i will make a lady of my own myself will to my darling be both law and impulse and with me the girl in rock and plain in earth and heaven in glade and bower shall feel an overseeing power to kindle or restrain the stars of midnight shall be dear to her and she shall lean her ear in many a secret place where rivulets dance their wayward round and beauty born of murmuring sound shall pass into her face the personification of nature in this poem is at the farthest removed from the traditional poetic fiction which peopled the world with dryads and nymphs and oreads nor has it any touch of the pathetic falsy which imposes the thoughts and feelings of man upon natural objects it presents unconsciously very simply and yet prophetically wordsworth's vision of nature a vision whose distinctive marks are vitality and unity it is in his faith that every flower enjoys the air it breathes it is also his faith that underlying and animating all this joy there is the life of one mighty spirit this faith rises to its most magnificent expression in the famous lines composed a few miles above tintern abbey and i have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thought a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and the mind of man a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things all objects of all thought and rolls through all things the union of this animating spirit of nature with the beholding contemplating rejoicing spirit of man is like a pure and noble marriage in which man attains peace and the spousal consummation of his being this is the first remedy which wordsworth finds for the malady of despair the first and simplest burden of his prophecy of joy and he utters it with confidence knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her tis her privilege through all the years of this our life to lead from joy to joy for she can so inform the mind that is within us so impress with quietness and beauty and so feed with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues rash judgments nor the sneers of selfish men nor greetings where no kindness is nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us or disturb our cheerful faith that all which we behold is full of blessings four side by side with this revelation of nature and interwoven with it so closely as to be inseparable wordsworth was receiving a revelation of humanity no less marvellous no less significant for his recovery of joy indeed he himself seems to have thought it the more important of the two 
for he speaks of the mind of man as my haunt and the main region of my song and again he says that he will set out like an adventurer and through the human heart explore the way and look and listen gathering what i may triumph and thoughts no bondage can restrain the discovery of humble life of peasant character of lowly trivial scenes and incidents as a field for poetry was not original with wordsworth but he was the first english poet to explore this field thoroughly sympathetically with steady and deepening joy burns had been there before him but the song of burns though clear and passionate was fitful cooper had been there before him but cooper was like a visitor from the polite world never an inhabitant never quite able to pierce gently powerfully down to the realities of lowly life and abide in them crab had been there before him but crab was something of a pessimist he felt the rough shell of the nut but did not taste the sweet kernel wordsworth if i may draw a comparison from another art was the malay of english poetry in his verse we find the same quality of perfect comprehension of tender pathos of absolute truth interfused with delicate beauty that makes malay's angelus and the gleaners and the sower and the sheepfold immortal visions of the lowly life place beside these pictures if you will wordsworth's solitary reaper the old cumberland beggar margaret waiting in her ruined cottage for the husband who will never return michael the old shepherd who stood many and many a day beside the unfinished sheepfold which he had begun to build with his lost boy and never lifted up a single stone place these beside millet's pictures and the poems will bear the comparison coleridge called wordsworth a miner of the human heart but there is a striking peculiarity in his mining he searched the most familiar places by the most simple methods to bring out the rarest and least suspected treasures his discovery was that there is an element of poetry like some metal of great value diffused through the common clay of everyday life it is true that he did not always succeed in separating the precious metal from the surrounding dross there were certain limitations in his mind which prevented him from distinguishing that which was familiar and precious from that which was merely familiar one of these limitations was his lack of a sense of humor at a dinner party he announced that he was never witty but once in his life when asked to narrate the instance after some hesitation he said well i will tell you i was standing some time ago at the entrance of my cottage at riddle mount a man accosted me with the question pray sir have you seen my wife pass by whereupon i said why my good friend i didn't know till this moment that you had a wife the humour of this story is unintentional and lies otherwhere than wordsworth thought the fact that he was capable of telling it as a merry jest accounts for the presence of many queer things in his poetry for example the lines in simon lee few months of life has he in store as he to you will tell for still the more he works the more do his weak ankles swell the stanza in peter bell which shelley was accused of having maliciously invented but which was actually printed in the first edition of the poem it is a party in a parlour cramming just as they on earth were crammed some sipping punch some sipping tea but as you by their faces see all silent and all damned the couplet in the original version of the blind highland boy which describes him as embarking on his voyage in a household tub like one of those which women use to wash their clothes 
it is quite certain i think that wordsworth's insensibility to the humorous side of things made him incapable of perceiving one considerable source of comfort and solace in lowly life plain and poor people get a great deal of consolation in their hard journey out of the rude but keen fun that they take by the way the sense of humour is a means of grace i doubt whether wordsworth's peasant poetry has ever been widely popular among peasants themselves there was an old farmer in the lake country who had often seen the poet and talked with him and who remembered him well canon ronsley has made an interesting record of some of the old man's reminiscences when he was asked whether he had ever read any of wordsworth's poetry or seen any of his books about in the farmhouses he answered ay ay time or two but ye are weel aware there's pottery and pottery there's pottery with a leetle bit o pleasant in it and pottery sick as a man can laugh at where the children understand and some as takes a deal of mastery to make out what's said and a deal of wordsworth was like this sort ye nay you could tell frae the man's face his pottery would never have no laugh in it but when we have admitted these limitations it remains true that no other english poet has penetrated so deeply into the springs of poetry which rise by every cottage door or sing so nobly of the treasures which are hidden in the humblest human heart as wordsworth has this is his merit his incomparable merit that he has done so much amid the hard conditions the broken dreams and the cruel necessities of life to remind us how rich we are in being simply human like clifford in the song at the feast of burham castle love had he found in huts where poor men lie and thenceforth his chosen task was to explore the beauty and to show the power of that common love there is a comfort in the strength of love twill make a thing endurable which else would overset the brain or break the heart he found the best portion of a good man's life in his little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love in the old cumberland beggar he declared tis nature's law that none the meanest of created things of forms created the most vile and brute the dullest or most noxious should exist divorced from good a spirit and pulse of good a life and soul to every mode of being inseparably linked and then he went on to trace not always with full poetic inspiration but still with many touches of beautiful insight the good that the old beggar did and received in the world by wakening among the peasants to whose doors he came from year to year the memory of past deeds of charity by giving them a sense of kinship with the world of want and sorrow and bestowing on them in their poverty the opportunity of showing mercy to one whose needs were even greater than their own for the poet adds with one of these penetrating flashes which are the surest mark of his genius man is dear to man the poorest poor long for some moments in a weary life when they can know and feel that they have been themselves the fathers and the dealers out of some small blessings have been kind to such as needed kindness for the single cause that we have all of us one human heart nor did wordsworth forget in his estimate of the value of the simplest life those pleasures which are shared by all men nuns fret not at their convent's narrow room and hermits are contented with their cells and students with their pensive citadels maids at the wheel the weaver at his loom so blithe and happy bees that soar for bloom high as the highest peak of furnace fells will murmur by the hour in flox-glove bells in truth the prison unto which we doom ourselves no prison is 
he sees a miller dancing with two girls on the platform of a boat moored in the river thames and breaks out into a song on the stray pleasures that are spread throughout the earth to be claimed by whoever shall find them a little crowd of poor people gather around a wandering musician in a city street and the poet cries now coaches and chariots roar on like a stream here are twenty souls happy as souls in a dream they are deaf to your murmurs they care not for you nor what ye are flying nor what ye pursue he describes Coleridge and himself as lying together on the greensward in the orchard by the cottage at Grasmere, and says, If but a bird, to keep them company, or a butterfly sate down, they were, I ween, as pleased as if the same had been a maiden queen. It was of such simple and unchartered blessings that he loved to sing. He did not think that the vain or worldly would care to listen to his voice, Indeed, he said in a memorable passage of gentle scorn that he did not expect his poetry to be fashionable. It is an awful truth, he wrote to Lady Beaumont, that there neither is nor can be any genuine enjoyment of poetry among nineteen out of twenty of those persons who either live or wish to live in the broad light of the world, among those who either are or are striving to make themselves people of consideration in society. This is a truth, and an awful one, because to be incapable of a feeling of poetry in my sense of the word is to be without love of human nature and reverence for god he did not expect that his poetry would be popular in that world where men and women devote themselves to the business of pleasure and where they care only for the things that minister to vanity or selfishness and it never was but there was another world where he expected to be welcome and of service he wished his poetry to cheer the solitary to uplift the downcast, to bid the despairing hope again, to teach the impoverished how much treasure was left to them. In short, he intended by the quiet ministry of his art to be one of those poets who keep the world in heart. And so he was. It is impossible to exaggerate the value of such a service. Measured by any true and vital standard, Wordsworth's contribution to the welfare of mankind was greater, more enduring, than that of the amazing Corsican, bonaparte who was born but a few months before him and blazed his way to glory wordsworth's service was to life at its fountainhead his remedy for the despair and paralysis of the soul was not the prescription of a definite philosophy as an antidote it was a hygienic method a simple healthful loving life in fellowship with man and nature by which the native tranquillity and vigor of the soul would be restored the tendency of his poetry is to enhance our interest in humanity, to promote the cultivation of the small but useful virtues, to brighten our joy in common things, and to deepen our trust in a wise, kind, overruling God. Wordsworth gives us not so much a new scheme of life as a new sense of its interior and inalienable worth. His calm, noble, lofty poetry is needed today to counteract the belittling and distracting influence of great cities, to save us from that most modern form of insanity, publicomania, which sacrifices all of the sanctities of life to the craze for advertising, and to make a little quiet space in the heart, where those who are still capable of thought, in this age of clattering machinery, shall be able to hear themselves think. 5 but there is one still deeper element in wordsworth's poetry he tells us very clearly that the true liberty and grandeur of mankind are to be found along the line of obedience to law and fidelity to duty this is the truth which was revealed to him 
slowly and serenely as a consolation for the loss of his brief revolutionary dream he learned to rejoice in it more and more deeply and to proclaim it more and more clearly as his manhood settled into firmness and strength fixing his attention at first upon the humblest examples of the power of the human heart to resist unfriendly circumstances as in resolution and independence and to endure suffering and trials as in margaret and michael he grew into a new conception of the right nobility he saw that it was not necessary to make a great overturning of society before the individual man could begin to fulfil his destiny what then remains he cries to seek those helps for his occasion ever near who lacks not will to use them vows renewed on the first motion of a holy thought vigils of contemplation praise and prayer a stream which from the fountain of the heart issuing however feebly nowhere flows without access of unexpected strength but above all the victory is sure for him who seeking faith by virtue strives to yield entire submission to the law of conscience conscience reverenced and obeyed as god's most intimate presence in the soul and his most perfect image in the world if we would hear this message breathed in tones of lyric sweetness as to the notes of a silver harp we may turn to wordsworth's poems on the skylark type of the wise who soar but never roam true to the kindred points of heaven and home if we would hear it proclaimed with grandeur as by a solemn organ with martial ardor as by a ringing trumpet we may read the ode to duty or the character of the happy warrior two of the noblest and most weighty poems that wordsworth ever wrote there is a certain distinction and elevation about his moral feelings which makes them in themselves poetic in his poetry beauty is goodness and goodness is beauty but i think it is in the sonnets that this element of wordsworth's poetry finds the broadest and most perfect expression for here he sweeps upward from the thought of the freedom and greatness of the individual man to the vision of nations and races emancipated and ennobled by loyalty to the right how pregnant and powerful are his phrases plain living and high thinking the homely beauty of the good old cause a few strong instincts and a few plain rules man's unconquerable mind by the soul only the nation shall be great and free the whole series of sonnets addressed to liberty published in eighteen o seven is full of poetic and prophetic fire but none among them burns with a clearer light none is more characteristic of him at his best than that which is entitled london eighteen o two milton thou shouldst be living at this hour england hath need of thee she is a fan of stagnant waters altar sword and pen fireside the heroic wealth of hall and bower have forfeited their ancient english dower of inward happiness we are selfish men oh raise us up return to us again and give us manners virtue freedom power thy soul was like a star and dwelt apart thou hadst a voice whose sound was like the sea pure as the naked heavens majestic free so didst thou travel on life's common way in cheerful godliness and yet thy heart the lowliest duties on herself did lay this sonnet embraces within its scanty plot of ground the roots of wordsworth's strength here is his view of nature in the kinship between the lonely star and the solitary soul here is his recognition of life's common way as a path of honour 
and of the lowliest duties as the highest here is his message that manners and virtue must go before freedom and power and here is the deep spring and motive of all his work in the thought that joy inward happiness is the dower that has been lost and must be regained here then i conclude this chapter on wordsworth there are other things that might well be said about him indeed that would need to be said if this were intended for a complete estimate of his influence i should wish to speak of the deep effect which his poetry has had upon the style of other poets breaking the bondage of poetic diction and leading the way to a simpler and more natural utterance i should need to touch upon his alleged betrayal of his early revolutionary principles in politics and to show if a paradox may be pardoned that he never had them and that he always kept them he never forsook liberty he only changed his conception of it he saw that the reconstruction of society must be preceded by reconstruction of the individual browning's stirring lyric the lost leader just for a handful of silver he left us just for a ribbon to stick in his coat may have been written with wordsworth in mind but it was a singular infelicitous suggestion of a remarkably good poem all of these additions would be necessary if this estimate were intended to be complete but it is not and so let it stand if we were to choose a motto for wordsworth's poetry it might be this rejoice and again i say unto you rejoice and if we looked farther for a watchword we might take it from that other great poet isaiah standing between the fierce radicals and sullen conservatives of israel and saying in quietness and confidence shall be your strength in rest and in returning ye shall be saved End of chapter 7